is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. According to several published law enforcement statistics and a crime report by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, there were 10,409 homicides throughout Washington state between the years of 1980 and 2019. Of those homicides, roughly 7,472 were solved, which meant there were nearly 3,000 unsolved homicide cases lingering throughout the numerous law enforcement agencies in Washington. In the past few years, we've seen a massive increase of those cold cases being solved. In our live show in Auburn, Washington a few months back, I talked about one of the cases that was solved in recent years. Over COVID, in fact. The case of 15-year-old Melissa Ann Lee, who was kidnapped and murdered in Bothell, Washington in 1993. In 2021, a man named Alan Edward Dean was arrested for her murder. This case was solved thanks to the introduction of a new forensic genealogy program put in place by Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson. When DNA is left behind in a crime scene, it's analyzed and uploaded by law enforcement into CODIS, the National Crime DNA Database. If it gets a positive match, great, they can catch a killer. If it doesn't, previously it just sat in a case file waiting for a new lead or for CODIS to suddenly populate a match, which happens when a suspect is arrested for another felony violent crime. Well, now there's another option. The public became obsessed with testing our own genetic genealogy. We all want to know where we come from and now what our food allergies are. And that cultural obsession can be leveraged to help solve some of these unsolved crimes. Legally, police can't review the data in private websites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, But if someone chooses to take their own DNA profile from one of those sites and upload it into websites that do allow police to review it, sometimes matches are made. For instance, I downloaded my genetic profile from 23andMe and uploaded it into GEDmatch. GEDmatch allows agencies to load DNA samples from cases to compare against the profiles uploaded by the public. If there's a match, this allows them to narrow down potential suspects by putting together a family tree. Luckily, the police haven't called me yet. (laughs) Surprising. I think most everyone listening to this remembers the Golden State killer case, right? Well, they used this method to catch him by matching the DNA profile to his daughter. Now, even though we've made major strides in technology and more attention seems to be focused on cold cases, it's expensive to do this type of research. Even with volunteers offering their time for free, it costs law enforcement $700 per upload to GEDmatch. That doesn't sound like a lot when you're looking at the possibility of closing a decades-old case, but it adds up. The Attorney General's office has donated $220,000 to local Washington agencies to help with this, which is great, but it doesn't help if the agency is also understaffed. Not to mention, that doesn't cover all of the unsolved cases they might have. The money goes beyond just unsolved homicide cases. It also goes to unsolved rapes, which we know occur more frequently. 
there just isn't enough money to cover them all. It's logical that the most homicides and unsolved homicides in Washington occur in the Washington counties where major cities reside, like King County, home of Seattle, and Pierce County, home of Tacoma. That being said, we can't overlook Thurston County, the home of Olympia, the third largest city in Washington and also the state's capital. Other cities that Thurston County encompasses are Lacey, Rainier, Tonino, Tumwater, and Yelm. Altogether, the population stands at nearly 300,000. 30 of the nearly 3,000 unsolved Washington state homicides are from Thurston County. Most of the names on Thurston's unsolved homicide list you probably wouldn't know, but there are a few that are recognizable, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Four in particular seem to be brought up more than any other. Matthew Anfelt, Logan Schindelman, Nancy Moyer, and Karen Bodine. I'm positive we will end up covering all of their cases, but today I'm focused on what happened to Karen Bodine. In the pre-dawn hours of January 22, 2007, Karen Bodine's body was discovered by a passerby at the entrance of a gravel pit in Rochester, Washington. Mere hours before, a police officer spoke to Karen and had the opportunity to make sure she got home safely to her family. But they didn't. What happened to Karen Bodine? In this episode of Murder in the Rain, we sit down with Carly Bodine to help tell the story of her mother's murder. We also get to hear from the new Thurston County Sheriff to learn just how he intends to deal with cases like Karen's in the future. Karen Bodine was born on March 11, 1969, in Olympia, Washington. She spent the entirety of her life living in or near Olympia. Her friends and family describe her as creative, fun, and passionate. She loved animals and was a girly girl. At 37 years old, she had three children, Tanner, Taylor, and Carly. She loved her children and often left them notes hidden around the house telling them just how much she loved them. My mom, Karen, she graduated from Tumwater High School. She was a Tumwater resident her whole life. She grew up on the farm. Like, she loved animals. She was always bringing home cats and dogs or probably a raccoon and a chicken as well. <laughs> choking. Um, she loved to bake and everything. Like, cookies were great. She always ate the cookie dough and everything. But cake, she was extraordinary at decorating them. Like, you didn't want to eat it because it was so pretty. Her favorite was, like, strawberry, vanilla. She just... <sighs> She she was great. Um, she was very much a girly girl. Um, you know, she loved outdoor and nature and everything. But when she was out playing with her cats and dogs or the horses or what have you, her hair was perfect. She had her lip gloss <laughs> on. Her nails were done. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> she was just, I don't know. I remember um, for Halloween, like you go to a store and get Halloween costumes we didn't do that at my house. My mom always made our costumes, always. So that's great. What was what was your best costume that you can remember? Well, that's a tie because she made me this awesome witch outfit, and I loved it. But also, one year I was Oscar the Grouch, and she like <laughs> got me a garbage can and like, <laughs> me around. That's great. That's creative. I like that. Yeah. Karen definitely had her demons. She had several mental health issues which contributed to her ongoing battle with sobriety. Because of her struggles, her children resided with her parents, Dave and Sharon Bodine. My mom loved us so much. She worked so hard to be sober for us. 
But addiction, addiction is like an incredibly hard thing to kick. So especially when you have an underlying mental health issue, mm-hmm. my mom was diagnosed bipolar, also manic depressive. Karen regularly saw her kids. In fact, she often lived there with them at her parents' house. So she wasn't an absent mother. But in 2007, she was living with her boyfriend, a man named Kevin Hastings. The night of January 19, 2007, police were called due to a potential domestic violence situation between Karen and Kevin. As it was Kevin's house, police urged Karen to find somewhere else to stay. They then filed an order of protection against her, which meant she needed to stay away from him until the matter could be resolved in court. Since she was required to stay away from Kevin's home, she ended up walking to a friend's home, which was roughly 10 minutes away in Rochester, south of Olympia. This was the home of Jim Hunt, a mutual friend of Kevin and Karen's. All right. Now, uh, to kind of move into a more uncomfortable topic, the days prior to your mother's murder, what was going on? I've read that there was an order of protection against her. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic in your family or what was happening in her life? Um, yeah, first of all, I just want to kind of clarify that aspect. Um, so yes, uh, there was a domestic disturbance at the home. Usual police protocol for that is when some, a police officer is called to a domestic violence, one of the parties has to leave the residence and they're put under a protection order until the court date, till it gets resolved. Just, that's just basic procedure mm-hmm. it was my mom's boyfriend boyfriend's house like yeah she did live there and that was known but she also wasn't you know on the lease or anything it was his home so she was the one that voluntarily left and they just put their order on until she had court which unfortunately she died before any of that took place that makes a lot more sense thanks for clarifying that so were you um living with another family member at the time um so we were with my grandparents um And my mom lived with my grandparents off and on throughout our life, too, very happily. It's just at that time she was with her boyfriend, even though she still had contact with us. Okay. And she was staying at the time of her murder. She was staying with friends. Um, My mom was staying with her boyfriend, Kevin Hastings. Okay, but she was she left the home. Where was she staying when she left? Then um, Karen took a few belongings And she walked about 10 minutes to the house of someone she knew. That was Jim Hunt. Mr. Hunt was a good friend of Kevin Hastings, and they were in a band together. Mr. Hunt's home was known to be a hangout for drug users. Karen stayed at Jim's house for the rest of the weekend. There were other people who stayed in the home with them or visited throughout the weekend. Police have described that this home was known to be associated with people who were involved with drugs. They were described in the media as a rough crowd. Karen, someone who had tried to stay clean from drugs several times and who was having an emergent situation with her live-in boyfriend, was not in a great mental state to be around this type of atmosphere. It would be detrimental to not just her mental health, but any kind of progress she was making with her sobriety. After getting into an argument with someone at the house, she was asked to leave. She did so, and not long after, a resident of a Lacey, Washington neighborhood noticed Karen walking near Sleater Kinney Road without a coat on the night of January 21st. They called police out of concern as it was pretty cold and she seemed like she was in distress. When the police arrived between 9 and 10 p.m., they spoke to Karen, 
and claimed that she assured them she was fine and was on her way home to Rochester. Witnesses at the residence agree that it was obvious that Karen had some mental health issues over that weekend, but that's where she was. They say that was obvious. So that's a, a witness testimony saying that they they saw her having mental health issues or there was like a few um, different statements of her like being upset or arguing with people or walking down the road, huffy puffy. Like, hmm. So in, I think I saw I watched a, a video of an, another podcast you interviewed with, and I think you mentioned that there had been a dispute between her and one of one of the people you mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah. So there was a dispute. And so she was asked to leave on January 20th. Law enforcement had a second chance to help Karen when a concerned citizen saw her walking near the Panorama City home, not looking well and not wearing enough clothing for the cold winter weather. So they called 911 for a welfare check. An officer made contact with my mom and tried to call a family member, but no one answered. The officer left her there on a deserted and cold sidewalk. Again, no offer of ride, shelter, or assistance beyond that one unanswered call. My mom, Karen, made her way back to Jim Hunt's residence, where she was last seen during the early morning hours of Monday, Monday, January 22nd, 2007. Unfortunately, Karen didn't make it home. One witness claimed Karen returned to Jim's home and they saw her at around 3 a.m. on January 22nd. That's the last time anyone claims to have seen her alive. Karen's nude body was discovered hours later near the entrance to an old quarry just minutes north of Rochester. A driver passed by around 8.45 a.m. on Monday morning and they spotted Karen's body roughly 15 to 20 feet from the shoulder near the cross-section of Little Rock and Sargent Roads. Karen's body was laying on her back with her head resting on an old car seat. When investigators arrived, they noted that she had a ligature hanging around her neck and had several marks that appeared to be left on her body from it. It was later determined that she had been strangled to death. Surprisingly, there was no evidence of sexual assault despite the fact that she was found nude. Investigators believed that the murderer posed her body to elicit shock by those that found her. While the area is relatively wooded and often used as a place to dump refuse, it's a busy road during the commuting hours, so that led investigators to believe that the killer, or killers, wanted her to be seen. They also believed that she was likely murdered at a different location, driven to the quarry in the dark hours of the early morning and dumped on the side of the road. The location Karen was discovered at is roughly 30 miles from where she had been staying with Jim Hunt. A local woman came forward to tell police that she had seen a vehicle at the location about an hour before Karen's body was discovered. She described it as a brown early 1980s Datsun with a light color camper shell. She said the vehicle was parked near the entrance and it appeared to be abandoned, but it was gone by the time the witness who discovered Karen's body drove by an hour later. Well, by 8 a.m. that morning, my mom was found dead, strangled with a cord her body naked, dumped like trash, in the rock pit close to the home of her parents. Posed against a car seat, what happened from the time where she left with her in the dissociative state when she was at Jim Hunt's house? Next, you know, she was found in a ditch, you know? Who, 
Who drove the brown Dotsons seen at the rock pit? Whose DNA is on the ligature? And the, the, the brown Dotson, so a witness saw this about an hour before she's found. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. What do you know about that other than the description of the car? Did they see a person? Witnesses saw a brown Dotson shortly before uh, Karen's body was found. They disagreed on the make and model. It's also known that one of Jim Hunt's guests drove a Dotson. Oh, boy, I didn't know that. Okay, let's talk about the early investigation from what you know. I have to I have to assume they followed that lead. Did they find that person? Did they interview that person? It's an ongoing investigation, but they they didn't really do their job. That's terrible. Wow. Okay, so the the posing. So she was posed up against a seat. Um was there kind of a profile made about the potential perpetrator? Was there something that the crime scene kind of told them about this person that would have committed this? Well, I mean, there's a few things like, first of all, where she was found, she she wasn't killed where she was found. So Uh there's that. She was placed afterwards with her head against a car seat and none of her personal belongings were ever found. There's that. Mm -hmm. Um, The rock pit, which she was discovered is very rural in the middle of nowhere it's off a busy street during commuting hours, but that's about it. It's a desolate, lonely road known for a dumping spot for stolen cars, poached deer. Witnesses saw a brown Dotson shortly before Karen's body was found, but they disagree on the model. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, and it's clear to anyone looking into this case that the way Karen was treated in the very beginning hindered the progress of the investigation. It's not a secret that Karen had issues. Drug addiction and mental health issues were part of her daily struggle. She had also been arrested several times, though nothing more than domestic issues and theft. But the media treated her unfairly, and it impacted how the public perceived her. We now see a beautiful mother of three who, at the time when she needed people to help her the most, was disregarded and dismissed. If that police officer had put her in the cruiser and called her family to pick her up, she would likely be here today. In the beginning, both the media and the law enforcement called her a homeless prostitute. Right there, interest in the case was lost. She was not homeless. She was not a prostitute. She was a vulnerable woman in a mental health crisis who needed help. And yet the system failed her. I fully believe with all my heart that she would have been able to beat her addictions had her life not been taken from her by her murderer. During the time, addiction was thought of differently. You know, know, we now realize that there is a lot more with mental health that goes along with addiction. And that's while we're able to help the root cause. But when mom was having her issues, there was a huge taboo against mental health and drug addiction. Yep. Yeah, that's very true. And unfortunately, a lot of these cases, that is the storyline. People dismiss mental health issues and they, or they don't know how to help it. And it's really too bad. My gut tells me that someone who had some kind of connection to the people Karen was with the night she was murdered had something to do with it. Whether it's the man she was staying with, someone else who stayed in the house, or even someone who was just affiliated with the group and was there for a short period of the night. Detective Hamilton believed that as well. He was quoted as saying, 
I feel very strongly that this was somebody she knew. And while there may be some dispute on if the Datsun was a car or another type of truck, it was always described as a 1980s model brown vehicle. And as you heard Carly say, one of Jim's friends drove a vehicle just like that. Sadly, we know that a lot of the evidence left behind at the scene where Karen was discovered wasn't processed. The area was known as a dumping ground, so it's not hard to believe that early investigators weren't sure what was evidence and what was junk. Though much of it was left behind, there were DNA samples collected, though there is some question to how many samples. Have you heard, um, now that potentially there's budget for DNA testing, have they retested any of this DNA, to your knowledge? Are they considering genetic genealogy to maybe find some of these people that are unknown? Or are they all known? Do we have a good idea of who we think did this? It's a great question. One that Karen's family would love to know the answer to, let me tell you. He just stated, as you said, that there was at least 15 contributors. Four. Four. There's there's four that are most likely or four contributors. There's four contributors. Okay, so that's pretty narrowed down. So just make that known. Okay. That, I'm glad that you pointed he, that up. <laughs> yeah, four, not 15. Uh, so whose DNA is on the ligature? Let's find out, please. Um, when can we expect the result from DNA testing? I would love to know. Why was certain evidence from the crime scene not collected? Like the car seat she was found. That wasn't collected. They did not collect that for evidence. They didn't have the hindsight or the common knowledge to do that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like, was it there previous? Was it something they dumped with her? Like, they don't know. They don't know if it was there. They don't know if it was part of the vehicle that she was dumped. Like, they don't know because they didn't think to collect it with evidence because they didn't. I don't want to say they didn't care because I don't know, but they, why wouldn't you collect all the evidence at the site originally? I mean, that just blows. Yeah. Um, Going along with that, is there a law against using private labs for DNA testing? Like, can we figure that out? Why can't we expedite this more? 16 years, that's kind of unreasonable. Yeah, I think it's something like in the past two years, 13 cold cases have been closed. And I could be wrong on that number, have been closed in Washington just by genetic genealogy. So like, why, why can't we look at these four samples and find at least who these people are if we don't already know mm -hmm. that's uh frustrating <laughs> to say the least yes yeah With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? 
They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. When I sat down to talk to Carly, I also had the opportunity to speak with the new generation leading the Thurston County Sheriff's Office, Sheriff Derek Sanders. I had a few questions for him about Karen's case and how they handle cold cases in general, and a lot of what he said to me was expected. He's at the mercy of being understaffed and underfunded. The police force is looking to fill roles. There's a need for funding to support a new way to handle DNA to help get through the backlog of cases faster. And of course, they need funding to ensure that cold cases have dedicated detectives. My name is Derek Sanders. I am the newly elected Thurston County Sheriff. Um, I started my career with Thurston County six years ago in 2016. Um, prior to that, I was at Lacey Police Department for a couple of years. Um, you know, I remember before even being hired into law enforcement, hearing about the uh, Bodine case, just because I went to Tumwater High School, um, which obviously wasn't too far from, from this area. And a lot of the, the kids that I went to high school with lived out in like the Rochester, Maytown, Little Rock area. So obviously this one hit the news. And I remember being a kid basically and hearing it because I was, I was at Bush Middle School. Um, when this, when this homicide occurred. Um, and then, you know, not really as a kid, right. You don't pay attention to cold cases and stuff, but then I, 
I remember getting here to the sheriff's office and, you know, you kind of go through and you hear about all the different, you know, cold cases and stuff that are going on and in files. And, you know, when you're bored as the, as a deputy, you can go through and, and read them. There's, there's nothing that limits us from reading those in the, in the little time that we have for spare time. But, um, so I've read through the cases here and there. I read through Logan Shimplemans. I read through, uh, Karen Bodine's and I read a little bit of Nancy Boyer's as well. Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of my involvement with this case. I was never a detective. I was never assigned to this case. I've mm-hmm. never had any any follow up or anything like that. So I guess it makes it kind of clean for me because I don't have any like any conflicts of interest um, when I talk about it. All right. So Sheriff Sanders, Karen's case has gotten some notoriety over the years, uh, which happens a lot with cold cases that uh, the public is really interested in and tries to get involved in. Can you talk us through how your office is currently handling cold cases? Well, they're handling them in basically a manner of if you have spare time up in the detective division. Our detectives, they sparingly get cold cases assigned to them. Um, so cold cases don't just they don't just die off in our office. They're handed off, if that makes sense. So the original Detective Hamilton from back in the day, uh, back in 2007, um, I believe he was the initial detective who handled this. And then, you know, as as deputies rotate back to the road or they retire out of detectives, those cold cases get handed handed on. So now we have a different Hamilton that was assigned the case when he went up to detectives. He promoted out, so now he's been handed. Uh, I believe Deputy Blankenship has now been given this case. And I mean, every time these cases, I was never a detective, so I never handled these cases. But in talking with them, they're like, man, every time these cold cases get handed down, you know, the the new detective basically gets briefed on all this stuff, and it's kind of emotional for them. I think, you know, we at least like in law enforcement, like we take cold cases personally um, because most of the time, you know, you think about all the murders and all these different things that occur um, with violent crime. We usually solve it. Most of the time, the stuff gets solved. Now, a lot of burglaries and property crimes don't get solved, uh, but you know, the resources are usually thrown at missing persons in cold cases and to not solve it. That's tough because we know that there's families that are counting on us. And so, the issue that we're having right now at the sheriff's office is the staffing side. Um, you know, we lost double digit deputies last year and there are detectives that promoted out of detectives and those positions weren't even filled. You know, Blankenship wouldn't have even been a detective. I don't think that normally would have taken on this case. We just didn't backfill um, Detective Hamilton's position because our staffing is so poor. And uh, it's a tough one for me to sit down and talk with people about that. Like, you know, the reason that your cold case isn't getting the attention it deserves is because Thurston County Sheriff's Office doesn't have enough employees. Um, that's not a fun conversation to have. Um, but, you know, when our detectives aren't doing their primary duties, it, it falls back on time that they have to work on cold cases. But again, if you're not even working at full staffing on the road or in detectives, then that, that free time becomes sparing. I have to imagine it's uh, actually pretty helpful when families like Carly get involved and push for for their case to be reevaluated and gather their own uh, case file, for instance. Um, do you find that helpful? Is it hindering? Do, do those cases get a little more attention because they have people advocating for it? I think so. I think it's helpful. Um, and I don't want to go speak for all of law enforcement, but I think it's helpful in the sense that as long as when we get to the evidentiary portions that we are contacted, where cases fall apart is when evidence isn't properly collected or when things are found in unlawful ways, if that makes sense. Right. So, 
Um, one of the one of the biggest concerns I have is that I could totally come out to all these different groups and all these different people who are hurting um, because they they have unsolved cold cases, and I could totally come out and, and tell them stuff that makes them feel good. I could cut corners. Um, I could say everything's great. We're we're working on it, and totally cut corners. And then my concern with that is that even if I got lucky, that it would probably result in a mistrial if we actually did find someone. Um, and so that's where it becomes tough. Is that is that with homicides and all these different things that we do, like the evidence has to be so spot on to get you through a trial mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, make no mistake, someone who's not been caught over the last two, almost two decades now, um, they're taking this case to trial. If, if we come across a suspect and get probable cause to book them into the jail, they're taking it to trial. Um, so we have to approach all of these cases like they're going to trial and that every last piece of evidence that we used is, is going to be challenged in a court of law. Right. So something we've seen in recent years uh, for, from Washington State are a lot of cold cases being closed due to uh, advancements in DNA analysis and leveraging genetic genealogy. I've even covered quite a few of these cases for the show. Um, can you tell me how this impacts your office? Are, are the DAs just going down a, a list of cases where they have DNA on file? Is this something families are advocating to try to get budget for on their own cases? Is something you can nominate cases for? I don't, I don't know much about how that works. Yeah, so the DNA, and I've, I've had this question, and I, I briefly asked one of my captains the other day, I said, hey, you know, I see this rumor floating around on social media that the Karen Bodine case has untested DNA. And I'm like, first of all, that would be a problem for me uh, because if we have untested DNA from, you know, an old cold case, like it seems like we would prioritize that to get that DNA tested. Um, and, you know, I was told that basically DNA was collected, but mm -hmm. the issue with DNA, and you can talk to anyone who, who does this for a living, DNA is not probable cause. So finding someone's DNA is not probable cause, it's a lead. Right. right. So simply having someone's DNA that shows up at a crime scene isn't enough to say, well, you know, their hair follicle is here. So now they're under arrest for murder because there was a murder that took place here. The DNA is a tool that we use to create leads. Um, now, what I was told from this captain, and I unfortunately, I wish I had time to actually go and verify this, but I haven't, um, was that DNA was pulled from the scene. It was tested and it created it. It basically possessed like a Petri dish of DNA. Mm -hmm. um, tons of people's dna came back when they actually did the car so the difficult part is you know if you have 15 people whose dna came back um and you know one of the people is you know the registered owner of the car from you know 20 years ago you don't really have much i mean those are potential leads but they don't actually really get you very close when you have a big petri dish like that um because you're treating everyone as kind of a possibility i guess not really a suspect um whereas you know, if you go to a homicide scene and you pull two pieces of DNA and one of them belongs to the victim and another one belongs to a different person who doesn't live there. Now, that's that's some strong DNA to work off of. Sure. Um, the biggest things that we've seen is more federal grant funding. Like we're getting a, um, it looks like we're in the process of getting federal grant funding for the rapid DNA test to come to Thurston County Sheriff's Office. Um, I'm still not entirely clear because there's there's still some stuff going back and forth, with like the Washington State Crime Lab. But it's looking like all the case laws point to the fact that we can just process our own DNA. We would still send those samples off to the crime lab, but it would basically allow us to work through leads faster. We wouldn't have to rely on the backlog um, that sometimes occurs at the state level for our DNA. 
it is not that I don't want to give these cases the attention they deserve. Like that is not the case whatsoever. Um, I see some of that stuff floating around. And I think that, I think that oftentimes it's just, it's easy that people want something to blame for, for the, for the unsolved case. And I, I understand that, but I, I truly want people to understand that. Like I, I want these cases handled. I want them, I want them looked over on with, you know, a fresh set of eyes, all these different things. When you look at our department, I've been in office for 50 something days now. Um, and, and I inherited an office that, that is just bleakly staffed. I mean, everywhere you look at is a skeleton crew and, and the difficult part that we have to look at is, you know, where do the resources come from? And so with all that being said, there is a plan moving forward to get these things addressed. Um, and it's coming up in this next budget cycle. Um, in fact, I specifically brought up the Karen Bodine case to the county manager the last time we spoke. Um, and the fact that I'm asking for an evidence technician to bring one of our evidence detectives back into the general detective fold and assign them to full-time cold case missing persons. Uh, so it, it's not that I don't want these things solved. It's not that I don't care. It is none of that. I want these things addressed. Um, I just, I, I need some help to get there. And, you know, frankly, one of the best things that anyone can do to help our sheriff's office out right now, if you know qualified applicants, have them apply. I mean, we are experiencing a significant staffing shortage. And until that is addressed, we, we are operating on emergency basis right now where the emergencies are being handled. Again, like we talk about cold cases and how important it is to get that stuff. If we go too far below where our current staffing levels are, we're going to have to start cutting services, um, not adding them. So if you know anyone who wants to be a patrol deputy and wants to come work for the sheriff's office, I encourage them to apply and help us get our staffing levels up so that we can address stuff like this. As it typically happens with long cold cases, Karen's file has gone from the hands of one detective to another a few times, some investing more time and passion into her case than others. While Carly and her family wait for a callback from the new detective, Detective Blankenship, she'll continue doing what she does best, keeping her mom a priority and making sure her name remains in the public eye. Carly has found businesses to help donate to her mother's cold case fund. She's held vigils. She's done tons of interviews with podcasts and TV shows. And in 2019, she got to be part of an interesting opportunity called CrowdSolve. CrowdSolve has become a crowd pleaser at CrimeCon. For those of you living under a rock, as the saying goes, CrimeCon is an immersive weekend-long event that is fully dedicated to true crime podcasters, creators, TV personalities, detectives, scientists, victims, and their families all come together to host events. They're fun, they're entertaining, but they're also educational and do a lot of good, lending support and offering a platform for victims and their families. CrowdSolve is one of the events they often feature during CrimeCon weekend. It offers a way to revisit a crime that still needs to be solved. It's like a big version of crowdsourcing meets a murder mystery game, but it's not a game. This doubles as bringing some of the great minds in true crime together to look at the case from a new angle and also offers the family and law enforcement a way to spread awareness about a very real unsolved case that has many unanswered questions. OK, so you leveraged CrowdSolve in 2019, um, which I thought was really cool. Um, tell me about how that happened. Well, Mickey Hamilton, great detective with the Thurston County Sheriff's Office suggested mom's case to crowd solve. He really, truly advocated. Just so we're clear on that. Crowd solve was important to bring awareness to mom's case. It rejuvenated, you know, like 
news media uh, leads, it gave me the ideas for like billboards, honking waves. I love that. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like your family is kind of running, running things, <laughs> you know, like, and that's unfortunate. I always feel uh, it's unfortunate that families have to step up and have these stories continued on behalf of everyone else. And, you know, that's if how it is, but my experience and everything can help another family hurt that much less than great. I've done my job. I love that. Have you had families approach you for like tips? suggestions on how how they can handle their case yeah absolutely I get people asking to collaborate or ideas yeah it's it, it becomes a community unfortunately yeah I, I noticed that about your Facebook page you know people really care they really want to know what happened I'm impressed by Carly's tenacity which is usually the case when it comes to cold cases it could be easy to give up after over a decade, except that you'll never know exactly what happened, hold on to the fond memories, and try to move on. But I have a feeling that if she did that, everything in Karen's case would be at a standstill. All right. So how do you, I, I think I have an idea of how you feel. How do, How's the case going now? Who's working on it? Have we learned anything new? Again, we are so grateful for Detective Mickey Hamilton, who has helped renew interest in mom's case. Although he was recently promoted, the Karen Bodine murder has been given to Detective Blankenship. I've reached out to Blankenship numerous times, but I have not heard back. So if he is listening, I would like him to know that a result of my mom Karen Bodine's vigil, I've received a couple new tips that I would just love to discuss with him. Sheriff Sanders was the first Thurston County Sheriff in the 16 years since my mom's brutal murder, to attend her vigil. He spoke about planning for a cold case detective in the near future, as well as inviting me, invited me to a meeting to discuss DNA options. Although at this point, I'm still hopeful my messages to his office are returned so we can get that meeting scheduled soon. And now we hope. We hope that with further DNA analysis or genetic genealogy that the case will be solved. We hope that someone knows who did it and has information that will help make an arrest or that the person or persons who did this have a change of heart and just come forward. The Bodine family has gone 16 years without their loving daughter, sister, mother, friend, but I truly hope the pain of not knowing can be put to an end soon. My mom, Karen Bodine, was a beloved mother and daughter. She had friends who miss her and a grandbaby that she'll never get to meet. She matters. Her life matters. Someone out there knows something, saw something, heard something. Maybe now, 16 years after this person feels safer or more comfortable coming forward with information, maybe this person doesn't realize like what they saw or heard was truly that important. But hopefully this interview will remind them. The Bodine family still wants answers and closure. If you have any information that would help solve this case, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or the Thurston County Sheriff's Office at 360-786. Five five zero zero. Okay, so let's talk about your efforts and how we can support you. Are there places to donate, um, pages to follow, things we can be doing to really uh, continue this crusade to solve Karen's case? 
Well, Emily, thank you for asking that. Um, we are raising money for a billboard to raise to raise awareness for mom's unsolved murder. A local business, Lashgasms.com, heard about mom's case and is working with us. Anyone who shops Lashgasms.com using code Karen20 receives 20% off their order. And then the Karen Bodian Cold Case Fund also receives 20% of the sale. Lashgasms has an amazing mission. Beauty without bias and focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. The Bodine family appreciates this opportunity and encourages people to check out their website at lashgasms.com. In addition, people can follow our Facebook page at Justice for Karen Bodine, My Mother's Unsolved Homicide. They can message us at this Facebook page with tips and or questions or email me at justiceforkarenbodine at gmail.com. Was there any kind of outcome from the the crowdsourcing event? Not that I know of. Uh, I think really it was about having the case. Yeah, exposure, getting more people interested. And from it, they've gotten a lot of support on their Facebook group. Oh, good. They have this um, Lashgasms company interested in donating. So Lashgasms.com, any purchase you make using the code Karen20, you get 20% off and 20% goes to Karen's cold case fund. Oh, that's awesome. Right. So they they can do things like get billboards to raise awareness. I think I think everyone kind of knows it happened within that group. Mm. And that probably multiple people were involved. That was going to be my next question of what she if she told you what she was feeling or yeah. what you felt after speaking with her like what your instincts are on what you think happened well i have i had them before i spoke with her and i definitely think they're involved it's just a shady group and there were multiple dna samples found the sheriff says he claims oh there's like 15 dna samples and Hmm. that we can't afford to process them all well carly says that's not true she says there's four and that's narrow that's narrowed down yeah we can find out who those people are if they don't already know right and what i'm hearing word on the street so the kids say is that they're not all tested he claims that's not true but he's new he's new and he doesn't know much about this case yet the detective has not um connected with carly like i said there's really three previous detectives some better than others Right. Everyone had some sort of communication with the family, and this guy just hasn't called her yet. And I know, mm. I know they're understaffed. And Sheriff Sanders talks a lot about that. But uh, you know, we I, I mean, I'm guessing we could raise enough money to get them tested. You know, my thoughts on that, which is, let's see the books and see the numbers and see what kind of thing we're talking about. Because mm-hmm. how often I literally wrote something the other day for a future episode where the numbers were being skewed so they could keep getting their budget. So I tend to have a hesitancy mm-hmm. when it's a $700 charge to test something well, that could but get that's a murder. genealogy. That's genealogy. So that doesn't include the other genetic testing they might do or the other DNA analysis. But once you have your profile, you can upload it to GEDmatch for $700. I'm just saying if it brings families closure Agreed. and it uh, could get a killer off the street, then let's look at your books and really see what we're talking or about. Or killers. That's the thing. Right. Like, yeah. The early, early investigators were like, yeah, there's multiple people right. involved in this. So right. I, I agree with you. Like, I don't know. I feel like we'll probably hear in the next few months um, some movement some on sort of it. Update. But I just wish, 
I hope that by the time this airs, that Blankenship has connected with her. Yeah. She, That's um, the least you can yeah. do. Even if there's nothing there to say, I am acknowledging this. Right. Even though there's nothing here. And there have been there has been some progress because Detective or excuse me, Sheriff Sanders, Carly said he's the first sheriff that's even come to any of the vigils or anything like he was wow. there. And sure, that might have been for photos for the website or whatever, but he's making an effort to connect yeah. with people. And, and that's and a good in all start. fairness. That's not a, a tiny town. That's not a tiny area. And you probably have a lot of vigils going, you know, like mm-hmm. not to say, oh, what, you know, that's amazing. He went to that. But that is a good step because with everything there is to do surrounding a case to take your time to do that. Yeah. To at least say, I'm acknowledging I'm I'm here. I think it's important. Even if to, there's nothing I have to offer. To make an effort to connect with these because these people are upset, obviously, and it's frustrating and they go through detective after detective. It's nice to know somebody is like trying to make an effort to know yeah. who you are about the case. And he talks a little bit about he's he's younger. He talks about growing up in the area and, and hearing these names. Mm. And now he gets a chance to like try to help to write it. And yeah. so he's really hopeful that he'll have a budget to have a dedicated cold case detective rather than what they do now is they divide up all the cold cases to detectives and they can only dedicate whatever free time they have to it. Right. We've talked to a couple of detectives who are very passionate. They take it home and they think about it and they do whatever they can. Right. Others, maybe not. It's harder. It's sad. And also... That's not a fair ask. Yeah, they should be getting paid if for you their are, time, If right? you are a detective who is an active detective who works on immediate cases, then that's what you should be working Abs- at. That's I think, the priority. I'm not an expert, but I would think the skills and the, the the technicality of what you need to do from an active case to a cold case is different. It is different. And it takes, I think it takes exper- experience. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see more and more uh, retired volunteer detectives and I think there are programs and I think as time goes on it might get improved but we need budget you can't just expect everyone to do things for free and do a good job at them and I I do agree it's not fair like your priority is a living person you're solving a case for right now or a case that's fresh where the lead is maybe stronger right and we can't we can't fault them for that. That's how it works. Yeah. But if there is a role that is solely dedicated to cold cases, mm-hmm. might we see more getting closed? Perhaps. Um, but yeah, we it's definitely funding. But at the same time, um, that doesn't excuse like the faults and the mishandling in the past right. of many of these types of cases. Well, or what they did in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You can't bitch to me if I'm that family member. You're not going to come crying and moaning to me about your staffing and your money and your budget and whatever mm-hmm. when you shat the bed from the beginning. Oh, and her, she was a joy to be on that call with because she she kept quiet while he was talking, but it, you could see the years of frustration. Yeah, um, if you had if you had treated her with respect and you had processed the scene appropriately from the get go, this might not be on your cold case list. Oh, yeah, it should have been to me. So don't come whining to me about needing more money. I know. I I look at cases like these and the one thing that stands out is that should have been solved. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why these four cases are so well known throughout our area because they should have been solved. Or they or they kind of are, but not quite to the point that charges can be brought. Right. And he does touch on that in the interview is that you write with cold cases. You have to have a rock solid case with rock solid evidence. It is hard to go to court with those sometimes. Yeah. So I do understand that. We're not 
you know, it's not silly. And I don't think he's going to come into office and fix everything this year. Right, right. Um, I do. But at Washington has been making great efforts towards kind of setting the standard on mm-hmm. cold cases. So I am excited to see what the next few years bring. Yeah. Hopefully uh, some more closure for all this and every family. Yep. So if you want to help Carly out, go to lashgasms.com, make a purchase, and 20% will go to the cold case uh, fund, as well as you get 20% off, and that's using code Karen20. And watch our Instagram, because we're going to do a giveaway soon. I bought a bunch of sets of lashes and glue, and we're going to give away some Murder in the Rain merch, and uh, you can try it out. And rather than do bloopers, Carly and I made an agreement, so there's a clip of her telling a story about her mom. So when I talked to her, I explained like, hey, we normally do bloopers. I want to give you a heads up. And she's like, she didn't wasn't opposed to them. She goes, but how about instead we do this? And I thought that was sweet. So. All right. Now we normally end our show with bloopers, as you know, because we talked about that and you had a fantastic idea. And that was instead of bloopers, what if you shared a fun story about your mom? And so I want to give you uh, a time to do that because I think that is a, a really sweet idea. Let's do it. Thanks. Okay. My mom loved animals and everything. Um, you know, typical little girl who doesn't want a pony for Christmas, right? <laughs> so that's what she'd always ask for. And she lived out in the country and it had snowed a little bit that year. And she woke up and ran out and looked at the presents and looked outside and there was horse tracks. She was like, no way. Like I actually got a pony for Christmas. It was the neighbor's horse that got out. <laughs> They waited till like, the day was over to tell her to break the news, but <laughs> oh, so that's too bad. She to hang on for a while thinking she got one. <laughs> yeah, so I just, I mean, that just captures like the epitome of my mom. I just think it's a great story. That's sweet. Well, Carly, I really appreciate you talking with us. I think it's really important that people hear from family members to remember that these these victims that we talk about are real people with people that love them. Uh, who really need answers. So I I really do appreciate you making time to chat with me. No, Emily, I appreciate you. Actually, thank you so much for the opportunity to raise awareness for my mom's case. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at Patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>